This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The next United Nations climate meeting, the Conference of the Parties or COP26, begins next week, this time in Glasgow, Scotland, coming during a year of continued record-breaking heat waves, hurricanes, wildfires and warming temperatures. The stakes are crystal clear. Representatives from 197 nations will participate in this largest of all world gatherings to tackle climate change. Taking place six years after the historic Paris Accords, signed at the COP21 in 2015, this year's meeting is aimed at creating an updated agreement. My guest is Rachel Cletus, Policy Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Welcome to the program, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. So what exactly is expected to happen? These meetings are, are huge. They run several weeks long. There's the heads of state that give grand speeches, and then there's the actual environment ministers, etc., who hash out details. And there's just usually so many moving parts. How do you explain to a layperson what's expected to take place um, starting October 31st in Glasgow? Yeah, so COP26 is happening in Glasgow. It's going to start on the 31st and run about a couple of weeks. And this year is a very important year because last year's COP was canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This year, two negotiators and civil society representatives and governments are coming in the midst of the COVID crisis that's still ongoing. ongoing. So we know that many representatives from the global south are facing real challenges because of global vaccine inequity in making this journey. There are public health concerns. But now that nations are gathering, the key issue on the table is the one you highlighted at the top, which is that the climate crisis is here and now. World leaders have not done enough to cut emissions. They have not done enough to marshal the finance that's needed by developing countries uh, to help adapt to climate change and make a low carbon transition. And Glasgow is a moment of reckoning now and world leaders need to step up. So what is the building on the Paris Accords that is expected to happen? You know, the Paris Accords in 2015, 16, six years ago, were supposed to be this groundbreaking agreement, although from the view of climate justice activists worldwide, it didn't go nearly far enough. Then we had the Trump administration here in the United States pull the U.S. out. Um, so for four years, we weren't even party to this agreement. Then the Biden administration, incoming Biden administration, um, uh, re restored the U.S role. So how specifically will this year's COP build on what took place in 2015? Yeah, so in 2015, the Paris Agreement gave us a science-based goal. It said that the whole world collectively should work towards keeping global average temperature increase to as close to 1.5 C above pre-industrial levels as possible. And to do that, we need to cut emissions in the near term. In this very consequential decade, science has uh, shown us that we need to essentially half global heat trapping emissions. And right now, countries' emission reduction pledges are not lining up with that. Uh, they are, in fact, putting us on track for 2.8 degrees Celsius or more by the end of the century. The other quick thing I did want to mention uh, on a technical note, the U.S. did exit the Paris Agreement under the previous administration, the only nation, shamefully, that's done that. But we were out for barely a month. Uh, because it took some time for, uh, for that to go through. 
we were out and then we were back in as soon as the Biden administration came into power. And the Biden administration has taken some important steps. They've announced a serious US commitment to reduce emissions on the order of 50 to 52% below 2005 levels by 2030. They've promised to ramp up climate finance to 11.4 billion annually by 2024. But it's not enough because we haven't yet delivered on the policy details that are going to help ensure those emission reductions. We're still fighting right now in Congress, as uh, many of your viewers and listeners will know, for a bill that we hope will lay a very strong foundation. It has this Build Back Better Act has a lot of components related to climate change that are very, very valuable if we manage to secure them. The administration can also implement regulations that will further help cut emissions. So we need to deliver on those policy details so the world can trust that we actually are going to cut our emissions. The other thing is back in 2009, richer countries had promised developing countries that they would marshal 100 billion annually by 2020 in climate finance to help developing countries, and they've fallen far short. Um, you know, in the lead up to COP, we've now seen reports come out that show that they have fallen significantly short and won't be able to get on track until at least 2023. Um, in the interim, of course, the climate crisis has worsened, developing countries' needs have risen. So a key part in Glasgow is that this climate finance pledge needs to be followed up on. Richer countries have to show how they're going to meet that $100 billion pledge, but also going forward, how they will significantly increase that funding. African nations, for example, have called for $1.3 trillion by 2030 because the needs are extraordinary right now around the world. Uh, just one example, in Madagascar, more than a million people are facing a climate-caused famine that's put many people at risk of hunger and food insecurity. So let's uh, also talk about what the COP26 will look like in past years. There's been um, this interesting relationship between the negotiators who are inside and civil society organizations who are sometimes led inside and sometimes not often civil society organizations from all over the world pro provide the very necessary um, outside pressure, right, to try to shame um, the delegates in the right direction, hold them accountable, um, and in general, apply that needed pressure because, of course, the, all the corporations, fossil fuel industries are on the inside lobbying actively for their needs, right? Is that, you think, that, do you think that that sort of thing, Absolutely. that dynamic will play out again? For sure. You know, at these COPs, what's really important to remember is it's not just political theater. This is the one legitimate space in which every country has a voice, no matter how big or small they are. And civil society has a voice. And we as civil society representatives bring a very important aspect, which is what the people need. Uh, I belong to the Union of Concerned Scientists. We see it, one of our jobs as elevating the science and making sure that science is centrally engaged you know, on this issue, the latest science. And then also we work together in coalition with a number of groups from across the world who are bringing that perspective from the ground. Small island nations talking about the existential threat of sea level rise to their countries. Uh, all over the world, solidarity around 
what it means to face a climate crisis compounded by COVID-19 and the economic crisis we're in right now. So this is a key aspect and holding the feet of our policymakers to the fire is very, very important to deliver ambitious outcomes. We know that the fossil fuel industry is very strong around the world. In fact, we're seeing it right now in the US. There's a reason why we're struggling to get the Build Back Better Act. It is because of the amount of fossil fuel money that is uh, in our politics here in the US. And that's true around the world. Unfortunately, with this COP in Glasgow, one of the challenges is that many civil society groups from around the world are telling us that traveling to Glasgow in person is very, very difficult during the pandemic. They're facing extraordinary hurdles. And that means that this COP is already getting set up to be more inequitable in terms of participation from the global south in particular. One of the issues is, of course, that you need big countries to participate during the Trump administration. There was a fear that the United States would pull back. Now there's headlines about will Xi Jinping of China, will Vladimir Putin of Russia show up to the COP26? There's some reports suggesting that they might not show up. What does that mean? I mean, we we the, the science is so clear and yet there's still so much reluctance from big countries whose participation is important, right? Um, to, to just show up because they still are playing politics with the future of our species and planet. And, and you know, thinking about regional dyna political dynamics and who's um, dominant over whom and who has more power, political power and economic power over whom, rather than uniting for our common good. Yeah, there's no way we're going to solve this climate crisis if we don't work together in a spirit of cooperation and mutual respect across the world. That is essential, and that's why the UNFCCC is such an important venue. But of course, these kinds of big global challenges are not immune from business as usual geopolitics, and that's certainly at play here. Now, whether these world leaders travel in person to Glasgow or not, uh, is perhaps not as important as what they commit to their countries doing. So we do need to hear from China what they intend to do by 2030. We're starting to see early reports. Uh, you know, they have pledged to stop overseas fossil fuel financing for coal. Uh, they have started to announce some sectoral-based policies that they intend to implement. Uh, but they have not yet announced an enhanced nationally determined contribution uh, for 2030. And we hope we'll see that before uh, the COP starts. Uh, we also hope we'll hear from India in terms of its enhanced NDC for 2030. Now, India has a very uh, ambitious pledge to ramp up renewable energy to 450 gigawatts by 2030. They say they can do it if they get climate finance. Um, and if that finance is on the table, it'll be really important to hear from India that they're willing to make that commitment because that will drive a lot of coal out of the system uh, in India. In China too, turning down coal is critical, making sure that the emissions peak well before 2030 is critical. Uh, Russia, of course, is a huge producer and exporter of fossil fuels. We need to hear that they understand that fossil fuels are not compatible with a climate safe future. But the US too has a lot to make up for, a lot of ground to make up for, having been on the sidelines for the last four years. We have to show the world that our promises are credible. They're not just words, but we intend to deliver on them. 
Now, what specifically do you hope from the Biden administration with the United States's um, participation? The Biden administration has said that it will be a champion for climate justice. Uh, there's been, you know, movements here in the United States, youth-led movements like the Sunrise Movement that have held the feet of politicians to the fire. They've helped to elect pro-climate justice lawmakers. Um, the United States, one would hope, would be poised to take a strong leadership at this moment. But of course, you know, we often see Democratic administrations not necessarily um, walk the walk, even if they at least pay lip service to issues. Do you think that the Biden administration needs to do a lot more than it's doing? Are you hopeful maybe that it will rise to the occasion? Well, I think that there's no question that the Biden administration is very committed. They understand the gravity of the science. They have been engaged in intense diplomacy. Special Envoy John Kerry has been traveling all over the world, speaking to his counterparts to encourage greater ambition. So this is all very promising. And our emissions reduction pledge, the climate finance that we've pledged is all very important. That said, uh, you know, the reality is that the U.S. has as a major major emitter, the largest contributor to cumulative heat trapping emissions, uh, richest country in the world, we have to do more. Uh, we are more responsible for the problem and we need to contribute more to the solution. And that's been lacking. You know, one key piece, for example, is in the negotiations, there's this issue called loss and damage. And loss and damage is what developing countries are suffering where they're facing such extreme climate impacts that they can't be curtailed just through adaptation measures or through curtailing emissions. Uh, they're experiencing displacement of people from land that's being lost to sea level rise, for example. And the US and other richer nations have blocked negotiations on this issue of loss and damage. They fear that it will be characterized as climate reparations. But that's just unjust, it's unfair because these impacts are happening. So one of the things that we hope to see in Glasgow is really meaningful attempts to address this issue of loss and damage, create a pipeline for finance for it, as well as a human rights centered framework to help deal with these challenges of displaced people. Uh, and we're looking for the Biden administration to take a different posture than the US has historically on this issue. So, Rachel, as we approach uh, the October 31st uh, start date for the COP26, are there things that people here in the United, Skin, United States can do from the ground to, you know, inf influence the situation? I imagine that because of the travel restrictions, because of the issue with vaccine apartheid, as you said, there's so many um, civil society organizations that aren't going to be able to make it like they have done in the past, but activists are creative. They've often made very, um, you know, interesting ways to hold politicians accountable using social media, using the internet. Um, so are there, are there things that you know of happening for people to be able to influence these critical proceedings on which our collective future depends? Yeah, I can't agree with you more. Youth activists and climate justice activists from around the world have been extraordinary in terms of showing up, marching in the streets, doing social media campaigns. I would say if you're based in the US, there are two very important things you can do. One thing is write to your members of Congress and tell them to pass the Build Back Better Act. That is a very, very important piece of what the US can deliver on the global front in terms of cutting our emissions. If we don't do our homework, right here in the US, 
we can't show up with credibility on the global stage. So that's job number one, get that bill back that are at fast, put pressure on Senator Manchin, Senator Cinema, who are standing in the way of getting this bill passed. The other thing I would say is usually on November 6th, which is the weekend between the two weeks of the COP, there will be a huge global mobilization because that's a moment of key pressure on policymakers to make sure that the COP is successful. If you are able to join local marches in your city or state around the country, please do so if you can do it safely. If not, please join social media campaigns, write to your local newspapers, connect the dots between the international and the local. Because all too often here in the US, we think that these things are happening far away and don't affect us. But climate change affects us all. Um, so we need to make sure that wherever we live, we're elevating the importance of the COP because this is not just about some political talks in Glasgow. It's about the future of the planet and the kind of future that our children and grandchildren will have. And actually, that's a really it's an important point that um, whether or not massive progress happens at the arena of the COP, there is already a lot of progressive and constructive and optimistic change happening at the local and even state level in the United States, right? Because people have realized that you can't put all your eggs in one basket, that you have to have this um, you know, multi-toolbox. Uh, Bill McKibben on Tuesday had an op-ed in, I believe it was the New York Times, about how the divestment a campaign to get pension funds to divest from fossil fuel industries is this remarkable campaign, particularly universities divesting. And so there's all these things that are happening that sometimes we might lose sight of, right? Absolutely. And for example, on Thursday, there's going to be a hearing in Congress where the CEOs of major fossil fuel companies will be testifying in front of Congress. Please follow that testimony, do social media around it. This is a moment of reckoning. There's a reason why we haven't had progress on the political front here in the US, and it's because of these fossil fuel companies. They've been lobbying against it. They've been spreading misinformation and uh, deceptive tactics uh, for decades now. And this moment when all of their CEOs will be testifying in Congress is a key moment. It is like that moment when the tobacco CEOs testified in Congress and had to finally admit their responsibility, their culpability. Let's make it one of those moments. Let's hold them accountable. Rachel, give out a website for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Yes, it's www.ucsusa.org. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We'll post a link to that website from our site as well. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Sonali. Take care. My guest has been Rachel Cletus, Policy Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access these and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.